0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. We've recently released a brand new gift set. The gift set contains a 25CL bottle of mead, and you have the choice from three flavours, including our brand new spiced mead. As well as that, you get a small rustic drinking horn, and both are displayed in a nice little gift box. So head over to the website, hornsofodin.com, to grab yourself one. Also, keep an eye out, as we're going to be adding more items and gift sets over the next month. On top of that, we give listeners of the podcast a a bonus 10% off with the discount code HORNS10. So remember to use the code HORNS10 at checkout. Right, let's jump into the show. the Naughty Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, co-owner of the company Horns Odin, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Matthias Nordvig.
1: Hello our guest this um, evening, morning depending on where we're at. I guess it's actually evening for you Daniel and um, well midday for you Jason and uh, morning for me.
2: Um, (laughs) Our
1: guest is uh, Jason Rawls, uh, author of the book The Oath. Uh, heathen poet's journey and aside from that jason you're just a guy
2: that's uh that's the correct summation i am uh just a guy uh just a guy (laughs) who happens to like uh language and uh the norse pantheon cool welcome to the channel thank you all for having me it's 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 a pleasure to be here
0: so how are you doing
2: i'm doing fantastic just uh sitting here enjoying that this book has, has taken off uh, unexpectedly and been like successful. You know, you don't, you're not, your first book's not supposed to be successful. It's supposed to just disappear into the slush pile and then you, you know, you <laughs> go back at it. So when it's actually successful and then you end up on a podcast with some prominent folks in your community, it's, you know, surreal is a word I use a lot lately.
0: <laughs> uh, you give it. I think you're giving us too much credit to be fair. I, I would, I would say we are just some guys as well.
2: Yeah, there you go. A guy and some guys that that fits.
0: (laughs) So, is this the is this the first book you've you've written, or have you written others before? Maybe that haven't necessarily been finished. Because I I I always you always hear that thing of you know there's there's billions of books that have started but never actually finished. So I guess that's the hardest thing is finishing a book as well.
2: I have dozens of unfinished novels, um, mostly speculative fiction fantasy uh worlds that will probably never see the light of day so there's definitely that um actually when the coronavirus hit and the lockdown came and i was kind of just depressed uh as everyone was i did polish off a short story of mine uh turning is like upsetting a a second world fantasy type thing um and put that up on amazon as a as an ebook uh so that that did give me a taste of how to operate in, you know, uh, KDP and Amazon and kind of metrics. And, you know, you sell, you know, sell, sell your three copies to somebody and suddenly you're on a chart somewhere and you can see that and how it performs. So it did give me a little bit of taste of the process, uh, early on, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, so obviously this book is in poetry form. Um, now I, I guess, you know, most of the sagas are kind of poetically written so have you when when writing it did you go back and study kind of the way that they were written or did you kind of follow your own path or what how did that work
2: well so you know um of course most of our our understanding of the past and how the uh, norse gods and before them germanic deities were were worshipped and interacted with is based on you know the the poetic and the prose and a couple of, uh, you know, the medieval etas and stuff. Um, So, you know, poetry is very important. Um, And I guess it just made sense. Uh, So, you know, I just, I started an Instagram account early in the year to sort of interact with the online heathen community, because before that, it was just not something I really did. Um, But then I, you know, I, I saw that this social media presence and people on YouTube and Instagram, it seemed to be, a kind of a community forming where you could actually contact people, unlike in the past. Uh, so I started an Instagram account and all I did was I took some art, put a co- put a quote from the Havamal on it, you know, as you do and release it. And it was like, Oh, this is nice. And, and I just had this idea. It was like, so I've written poetry my whole life. Uh, I love language. I love there's something about taking a sentence and putting it on a page and then coming back and editing that sentence and kind of trimming the fat off of it, making it cleaner, kind of making it sing. And the kind of emotions you can evoke with that, that that's always spoken to me. So honestly, I went back recently and, and threw up an old poem on my, on my Patreon that I wrote several years ago. And I went back and read it and was like, oh, this is a narrative journey into the underworld <laughs> um, way before I was doing any kind of pagan stuff with my writing. Um, mm-hmm. But it just, it just kind of came out organically that I was on Instagram. I was like, well, I'll just put a poem up. To these Norse Norse uh, Norse deities and I put something up and, and it got a lot of traction I was like this is an enjoyable process I'll keep doing it um <laughs> and then it just kind of took off one of my poems was really strong and it was about Idun, um you know the goddess of you know eternal youth and who's also married to Bragi who's got poetry and so there's like a really powerful I think conversation you can have there about the link between um art and immortality uh there's something really there you know all all these myths and and deities speak to things that are deep within us um so i just started following her on like a narrative poetic journey and next thing you know i'm in hell i'm talking to tear and it just kind of evolved into this thing it took me a few months and i was like i've got a book and here we are
0: so so was more of an an accident i guess than
2: Yeah. And, and, and creativity. And and I'm not sure if you have the same experience with, with crafting your horns, but I've never sat down and say, I'm going to plot this out and it's going to have, here's the beginning hook. Mm -hmm. Here's the middle, here's the climax. And here's where I wrap it all in. It's more like feeling of how things could go. And then, especially with writing, the very nature of the medium you operate in, the very structure of the words on the page are pushing you down certain avenues. And so I just kind of follow it. And, you know, and this is hooked up to my spirituality, which is heathen, also true, Norse pagan, however you want to call it. So as I'm writing these poems, I'm also making offerings to these deities, meditating on them. And it's kind of linked, you know. So really, I feel like I may have invented my own genre. Um It's kind of sh- shamanic poetry, basically. So instead of beating a drum, I just write. And mm-hmm. it's very...
1: Right. Like you, you, you start on the path. and this is, you know, how I like I, I have, there's like a million trails around me in, in, in the national forests right up here in the mountains. And like, that's, that's how I, is how I walk. Uh, when I hike, right, I, I just like, I follow a path and, and then I, then, then it'll take me somewhere unknown. And usually, you know, it turns out great. Once in a while, you, you have to turn around because there's an angry moose on the
2: trail or something like that. But, you know, that's, that's the general flow of, of it all, right? It's an
1: exploration. And, um, and I really like this idea that, uh, of, of like adding ritual to, to, to the process itself. I mean, this is a, this is added value, so to speak. And this is a a method that you see a lot of uh, people using these days. Um, I I think the most prominent examples are, are, you know, musicians like Heilung and Wardruna. Einar um, Silvik, for instance, has talked about this, uh, where he, like, uh, you know, he 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 goes out into the woods and then he takes uh, branches from uh, a birch tree that has like uh, um, branches uh, in the eastern direction. He takes those branches. He doesn't take any branch. He doesn't take. You know, uh, a, a, wooden leg from an IKEA table. No, no, he takes those because that adds value to the, the process and what he is creating. And, and to be honest, I, I, like, you know, um, from that very rationalistic um, uh, approach, you'd say that's nonsense, but I think it goes to show that uh, what we're seeing these days is that bands like that, they're really taking off. A lot of people are really connecting and relating to that, just like a lot of people are really connecting and relating to literature written from similar types of perspectives, right? Um, There's something to that. Um, It adds extra value and flavor, so I think it sounds like an awesome journey that you've been
2: on. Yeah. And it's, it's been really surprising how people have reacted to it. I've had people read my book and cry and <laughs> tell me that they cried and I don't know how to process that. That's, you know, what I'm trying to do here is take, you know, something I went through and it's something I experienced spiritually and, and, and put it on a page, but to have it evoke emotions in others, it's, is really, uh, it's been a very special and, and, and interesting experience for sure.
0: Absolutely, I bet I bet there really is a a humbling experience. I guess, you know, we we sometimes get little messages here and there about the podcast about how people, you know, they'll listen to it when they're exercising or, you know, doing stuff and and just, just little messages, they mean they mean an awful lot to get, you know, just knowing that you're kinda I guess to a point, you know, with with me and Mateus, we're on episode thirty-six now if each one's an hour and a half long. You look, this is my maths getting tested, but you're looking at maybe, you know, 45 hours of material of people. You know, if you've listened to every episode of us just speaking, and I guess to a point, people probably feel like they know us without actually meeting us. And I know that because I listen to a lot of podcasts myself. So I know that, you know, when I'm listening to people, you do get that sense of knowing somebody without physically knowing them, but you, but you do, you know, you do kind of know we are very honest on this. So, you know, you get a sense of who we are. And I i mean, I assume that that kind of comes through with the poetry as well, because they say with you, you obviously go to a very personal place when you write. So people get that sense from it.
2: I think when, when somebody's super honest and brutal and raw, there's going to be some portion of the community out there that that feel exactly the same way, because human experience is very the same experiences and the same feelings. So you, that's going to resonate. Um, although when you're doing it, it doesn't feel like it. And, and, you know, certainly I, I feel like an imposter half the time. It's, uh, it's, it's very strange. You know, when people say nice things to you, you, you want to be like, oh no, no, that's not, I'm, I'm, I'm not that that's not me. But, uh, but at the same time you have to accept it with a certain bit of grace so that you can mm-hmm. move forward and keep, keep communicating that value.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, when it comes to, to the actual writing of the poem, do you, you said before that you kind of like trim the fat off. Is it a case of that you just write in full sentences in, as you kind of like, are just, I just, I guess it's almost kind of in a zone, almost you know, right. Just putting stuff down and then you go back over it and trim it. Or do you try and write in poem form?
2: So basically I take the, take the images I'm seeing in my head. Cause, Cause a lot of times it's imagery. It's like visualization, like walking through the forest and I'm writing down about the trees and the way the leaves smell and, and, you know, you're picking out the key things that really evoke the experience. Um, and, you know, you just do your best to get it down and then you go back later and you read it and you think, well, actually, you know, when I said that that branch was gray, it would be better to say that it was like the sea tossing in the evening or something. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you say, oh, I said the sea was tossing in the evening and the, the breeze was flowing. and you're Like, ah, it was just gray. You know, you don't need all that. <laughs> and you go back mm-hmm. and forth uh, trimming the language down all to right. make it. Make it sing. Uh, and, and in my case, and I think this is important for people that are that are wanting to follow my path of making a book and releasing it the world. Make sure that if you're going to write something, especially poetry, send it to somebody else. Um, so I had an editor work over every one of my lines and send it back to me. And that was a conversation back and forth, um, because, you know, again, with the ease of public self-publication these days, it, it is easy to just throw stuff down there and just put it out there. Um, and that's, you know, not doing yourself a service either.
0: Somebody honest as well, I guess.
2: Preferably a professional because we live in an economy where you can go on all these websites and you can find, you know, like I found a magnificent cover artist. Uh, I think her Instagram is alchemist of the arts and she does these beautiful bind runes Uh, and I worked with her to make the cover. Uh, And then I found an editor. I basically put in my Instagram stories. It's like, Hey, I'm looking for a, Uh, somebody that can edit poetry but also has my same spiritual kind of viewpoint
0: absolutely because especially when it's such a personal journey you don't want somebody to then come and put their stamp on it almost and and change it but then I guess that's what a good editor does is that they take their own personal feelings out of it and just you know sort the words out I guess before we get too far away I guess I found it really interesting how you're explaining that it's it is more like a visual journey. And I guess, you know, I've never, I, I'm, I'm no writer. So I guess I don't go through that process, but that was, that, that was something that kind of lit up with me just thinking it made me see, I guess it kind of just made me think of it differently. You, you know, just in your mind seeing it and it is physically, you know, a journey for you, I guess you you're, you're traveling through it and writing down what you see, what you feel. And it is actually very much so like a wandering through, this this the whole mythology.
2: Yeah, it, for me, it's a bit of a shamanic memoir, I guess you could call it. Because to me, all of these experiences happened. You know, I can still mm-hmm. where the the clearing where I meet Odin for like the weeks that I was writing that poem. That clearing was there in my mind, and even now, that clearing is a special place within my head. And again, mm-hmm. this might make more sense to people that do things like shamanic journeying and and have places in kind of an altered state of, within their mind that they go for like visualized journeys, but there's like, it's a physical location now that, that I can go to and and jump off into other poems. Um, But yeah, it's just, it's very, again, very, uh, very interesting and and unique experience to, to participate in.
0: So it's not, so it's not necessarily a single journey in one sitting. It's kind of, I guess it's just a place you almost build within yourself that you can come in and out of and, I guess, visit when you, when you choose almost.
2: So I am what you call, and I think I'm going to use the right language. You can correct me if I don't, but hyperphasic. Um, So a lot of people don't realize. So um, there's aphasic and hyperphasic. So if you go in your mind and and can you visualize, for example, Mm -hmm. a chalkboard and you see the chalkboard now, it's black. Perhaps it has rust around the edges and you can take and write a letter and look and see that letter in your mind.
0: There's a percentage of the
2: population that cannot do that. They're known as aphasic. They actually cannot visualize okay. images in their head. And it, the inner world is so personal that people don't realize that. Um, and then some people are hyperphasic. And like me, I I could literally just be standing in a forest, smelling the trees right now and just like things moving around that I can see. So it's real. The, the muscles within me that, that allow me to visualize things are really strong. But I try to put myself in that state. And then I write while in that state and just try to capture what I'm going through as I do it. And it, again, it took maybe three or four months to get all this down mm-hmm. and to kind of go through this interspersed yeah. with rituals where I would go and offer or maybe do some research. You know, I did a lot of research on a dune early on.
1: So I want to ask you one thing. Um, you've separated the book into three sections, basically. Soul travel is the first one then we have the mad king that's number two and then we have number three gratitude do you want to talk a little bit about uh uh, why these um these sections came up and and what what they mean
2: yeah for so i think it makes sense in so soul travel that portion is the the more narrative version of it where i'm chasing a dune i'm going down into the depths of hell um I'm traveling, you know, talking to my ancestors, just moving through forests and uh, various landscapes. Um, And then, you know, that sort of portion ends when I finally come to the clearing um, where Odin is. And once I'm there, then I transition into the portion, which is I like to call Odin the Mad King. You know, there's there's the certain um, uh, you want to call him Brosatru uh, vision of Odin is like this. uh horn helmets, armor clad, like, yeah, war, bah. Uh <laughs> but but for me, uh, you know, there's certainly aspects of, of war about him. Um, but he's this ancient just mad <laughs> divine figure, you know, and 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 you know, you go back to the roots of his name. It's of course he's got more names than, than I, I care to even research. <laughs> uh but his it's the root of it is the other, you know, the madness. And and I feel like and you know, he was a psychopomp. Uh, way before he was uh, uh, fit to the, you know, the leadership role of the Norse Pantheon. So for me, he's he's always that kind of mad, but also deeply old and, and wise character. Um, so once I come to him, then that portion becomes him talking and me talking to him and kind of our interactions. Um, and then finally, gratitude. I just wanted to wrap it up by calling out by name the, all the individual deities that I interact with in the poem. So that's basically just a, a, f- just a few lines of gratitude for each one, you know, for, for, for allowing me, um, you know, to some of their time and to, and to at least work with. And and again, you could look at it in the sense that I interacted with real physical deities from an ancient time, or you could look at the fact that I worked with deep subconscious elements buried in my, uh, in my psyche, have those same names and characteristics. Um, I think either of those approaches is valid, um, as long as you, I think focusing on the result is is key there.
1: Mm, yeah. So it is. You know, it does have a structure of a ritual in and of itself. You know, you're you're building up towards a um, sort of a, a a release where you're where you're then interacting with with the deity that uh, that brings you knowledge and insight
2: and it, it and again, you know, I, it actually almost took me by surprise. The more I get into the, because you know, I, I come from a from a background of of, of following these these deities uh, in the past, and I kind of took a detour for Christianity, like a lot of folks do, and that never really worked out. But when I came back to this faith uh, and started exploring it, you know, there's there's you come across all these people that are operating now in the world, making music and telling stories. Uh, in an almost ritualistic fashion. And, it, and again, I think I kind of I stumbled upon what I've made here. And it, it's it's surreal because I've, I've written this book and objectively I can look at it and say it's something like a high-lung performance, you know, like, a, like a, a ritual translated into text that people can experience. But I didn't realize that when I was making it. And, and honestly, I kind of step back sometimes and look at this thing sitting on my bookshelf, like some alien creature that just showed up had me write it and now I'm talking <laughs> about it. Um, it's, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's strange.
0: <laughs> I, I, I personally think that's a really good way to come about doing things is that, you know, you haven't, there's, there's so many people, I guess that will, will see ban, you know, bands like Heilung and Wardruna and then try and imitate, imitate that in another form like poetry and, and kind of look at that and, not copy it but very closely kind of influenced themselves on it whereas with you you've kind of done it separately and then discovered that after but it makes it very to me anyway it makes it very kind of true and honest and something something different and and you know with the way that the horns voting came about things that come about like in that organic way always seem to last you know last the test of time in in my opinion anyway
2: I try to be real real genuine in 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 what i what I'm getting on about
0: uh what say one thing i I have to ask is is there or was there any psychedelics involved in the the writing because i feel like I feel like that would be an amazing thing, and you don't have to say if you don't want, but it was just something that i <laughs> i feel like I want to ask. because i mean we spoke about it a little bit on the podcast before, and I think that without a doubt you know the the throughout all human history different civilizations will have been will have been taken and experimenting with psychedelics and drugs so i don't i think a lot of the stories and the poems and everything comes from you know in that kind of space so it would make sense if it did but i also understand if you don't want to say
2: well it's uh it's interesting um i think that uh, certainly, there's a resurgence in psychedelics, which I think is, is fascinating, especially valid from a uh, health treatment standpoint. Um, I, in general, don't really drink or do much. Um, and I kind of take a page from Odin's book on that because in the Havamal, it, it basically says, hey, don't get wasted. You'll do stupid stuff. <laughs> um, that's the real Cliff Notes version.
1: He, uh, he, he really he, he repeats
2: that alive <laughs> uh, Yeah, and, and it's funny because you have a lot of people that are like, "Hello, Odin, let's get drunk," and you're like, "Yeah, uh, yeah um, I don't think that's kind of, but but you know, at the same time, you got to have fun. But but on the uh, on the psychedelic, there actually is a substance that's totally legal uh, that you can okay. get in the U.S. that will give you a mild uh, hallucinogenic effect. Um, it's called Mad Honey. It's basically from the Himalayas, and it is actually, again, to take it back to history, um, Xenophon, who wrote about the, uh, I think it's called the Anabasis, uh, when basically he was part of this mercenary group that went to support a Syrian uh, overthrow that didn't work out, and then they had to, all these Greeks had to flee uh, across Asia Minor, I guess what's Turkey maybe now, back to Greece. A lot of people died. They stumble across a field of flowers that have the same compound in them. Uh, and they ate a bunch and they, you know, had violent diarrhea and died. Uh, so that was bad, um, <laughs> but they also got really happy and that might be somewhat linked to the, uh, the, uh, odyssey's, uh, lotus flower sort of incident, if you think about it, but basically oh. there are these flower, there are these flowers that have, uh, uh, these kinds of compounds in them, um, that bees make honey from in the Himalayas and you can, it's not controlled. It's totally legal to purchase, get on Amazon, look up mad honey.
0: Mateus, um. Have you ever heard of mad honey before? I guess I'm just thinking now whether could it be used to make mead um, and could it in that sense then give maybe like a, a psychedelic effect from drinking it? It's not I, I don't know anything about it, so I don't know what it is, whether it would work like that.
1: I'm not a chemist, so I don't know if the compound the active psychotropic compound in um, that like transfers from the flowers into the honey and then into the mead. If that would mm-hmm. still be active, I don't, I don't know, but it's not impossible, I guess. Really, we, what we need to do when we think about these things is to like leave this idea that, uh, modern ideas of drugs. Uh, has like given us like, I'd actually say the modern war on drugs has given us a certain idea of what drugs are. <laughs> and it's like these these illegal substances
2: that uh, that um, um, you get busted for, except for in Oregon because they just voted to decriminalize
1: everything and legalize psilocybin.
0: Wow, that 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 will be interesting to see kind of what happens from there and how and the reaction. I mean, it's
1: really interesting to see in general that the American attitude to drugs is changing so rapidly. I mean, mm-hmm. Denver has uh, decriminalized uh, mushrooms too um, some time ago. So, so this is like happening all over, and there are more and more states that are legalizing marijuana as well. Um, but th- that aside, what 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 I wanted to say is that um, there are so many different plants and. Uh, mushrooms and 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 other things out there that can give you some kind of 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 you know reaction um that have some kind of psychotropic uh, uh, values I, I mean you know there there's so many different ways in which you can achieve some kind of you know uh, altered state of mind and mm-hmm. some, for some people you don't even have to actually ingest anything at all you can just like be be a little bit crazy right and there are so many ways to do uh the thing that we call shamanic journey nowadays uh you know uh and 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 i think the 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 most important thing is is uh, for for the uh, the individual to find a, 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 a safe and functional way of doing it, um, if you ask me. Um,
2: when, when you look at it, you know, different forms of ecstasy or, or ecstatic, you know, events, it's, I mean, that's just throughout the history of man, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. all the way back to the beginning. Who knows how far back that goes?
1: Yeah. No, uh, yeah and that's, I, and that's uh, it, you know, yeah. It is one hundred percent certain that these kinds of rituals were were happening in in pre Christian Scandinavia, and they might have even um, have happened in context of like that uh, warrior ideology that emerges in the five hundreds, which is the ideology that places Odin on that throne of of like some kind of war god and also god of kings and all that stuff. That that was like so. So deeply tied to ideas of magic and uh, ideas of, uh, you know, what we now call shamanic trance and, and those kinds of things. Um, this, this is also why I, I'm, I'm really focused on the structure here, because you take a soul travel first and you go through all of these realms and, 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 uh, um, spaces in the world. And then you end up communicating with Odin. And that's that's uh that that almost mirrors how I could imagine how these things could have worked out, uh, for uh for people in ritual. In like imagine this, um, sort of like dark hall, uh, like Viking Hall, where you have um, fires burning in the middle, you have a, bubbling pot of water that, you know, emanates steam. You have all the warriors seated uh, along the sides and you have the the chieftain king who's also basically his, his essence, his existence is merging with Odin in and of itself. Imagine just how he's wearing the Sutton Hoo helmet. Because that looks fucking awesome, and <laughs> <laughs> the, so so uh, uh, Neil Price, the archaeologist, uh, he worked with a, uh, a a group of reenactors in 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 England um, to figure out the, how that. A helmet with the mask could work as an odinic ritual uh, prop and they they found out that there's um there's some inlay of gold and ruby stuff over one of the eyes but it's not on the other eye or something like that and that means that it shines in the dark uh, oh. when it's like presented in front of a fire so that's what one shining eye right there um, that's the kind of stuff that these people were making back in the day and they were using it for these kinds of rituals when you wear that mask you're voice is muffled and and different uh, from what it usually is and everybody is going to be drinking mead probably because that's such a stable substance in context of odinic rituals Um, and just consider that the the mead that they would be able to brew would not have a particularly high alcohol uh, percentage. Um, it would be fairly low, and still they would be able to. and Still, they would consider this a a substance, a magical substance that that puts them in an altered state of mind. And that also tells you a little bit about the functionality of like these psychotropic things, right? That it doesn't actually have to be that potent for people to to all of a sudden be transported to somewhere else. And so, like that whole scene, that whole um, uh, experience and essence, right there. Uh, that, right, uh, that would uh, bring everybody into um, an altered state of mind and uh, 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 an entirely different space, a mythical space, like the type of mythical space that's uh, described in the mythology with Odin and his Einherja in this in Valhirk. you know, that would be incredibly powerful. And once you've taken part in a ritual like that as a warrior – you're bound to want to kick some ass somewhere. <laughs> <I'm sort> of, <laughs> it's, you feel very comfortable reading England.
2: <laughs> it, it's funny you mentioned that I've actually participated in a ritual with about 30 other pagans recently, uh, where, uh, it was an Odin's bloat. So mm-hmm. the whole thing was just a gift to Odin. And, uh, when I, I had a bottle of a hundred, so we're in front of a fire and there's a stone up over it. And, uh, I have my bottle of, a. 151 proof wild turkey, which I brought because I knew there's going to be a fire and I wanted to get something that would really burn. Uh, and when I stepped, you know, we're all giving our offerings and shouting at Odin and just kind of lighting up the sky. Uh, and when I step up on this big rock and I'm looking down at the fire, I kind of just lost it um, and just went insane in the most best possible ways and i'm just pouring it and i'm shouting oh that oh that i, I got i started to chant and they started it was like a back and a call and response where i'd say oh then they'd say it back and finally i just i i was like oh then take my voice and i was chanting and like i, I basically shouted until i didn't have a voice left and it was uh <laughs> it was a lot like that but it was uh it was intense
0: but absolutely i mean it is that that kind of That group mentality, as well, there is something to be said about when you're with a when you're with a group of your peers and you're all kind of doing something together. You do very much get whipped up into into a frenzy and kind of almost a hive mind. Even
1: I would say it's more than simply just like a a group thing. It's um, I think it offers a a a lot of um, a lot of freedom, actually. Um, for people this is also why we're seeing such a growth in these um, uh, spiritualities here in the US in particular a, a country that has been you know defined by by sort of very monolithic religions for a very long time all of a sudden they're, you know uh, you you're you're taking up uh, uh, you know traditions that um, that you can yourself define and and also actually gain a lot from and you know Nordic paganism, uh, Nordic mythology, is like a a, a language um, for some uh, for for some people to work all of these things out. Um, and this is you know it's interesting, right? Because uh, uh, I think both culturally, but also like from an academic standpoint, we have a tendency to separate the neo pagan stuff from everything else. Um, uh, even neo pagans do that, and uh, and you know, it's really interesting that as a Scandinavian, I, I mean, we we Scandinavians, we have had authors for the last two, three hundred years using Nordic mythology to think with in different kinds of ways. Um, we wouldn't call that neo-pagan. And so that's just to say... In, in so many words, I guess, uh, that, uh, that there are so many Scandinavian authors and uh, poets who use Nordic mythology to think with in so many different ways. You also have uh, contemporary authors who do this a lot. And that's because it's such an awesome system of thought, basically. I'm highlighting this because you, I, I I say I would say that you don't need to be a pagan, you don't need to be a Norse-based uh, a, a heathen to to enjoy this literature that, that that you've written, Jason. I mean, this this is this very much has a universal quality to it as well.
2: Yeah, I think if you uh, and again, you know, you look at stories like this, there's a reason myths endure. It's because they st- speak to timeless human experiences that we we'll always have to deal with. Death, pain, suffering, loss, change—that's uh, just across the board. But, but yeah, I like what you said there about not just Norse, Norse pagan, or Norse mythology focus. My my dream would be that 300 years from now, one of my books would be on somebody's shelf who has no relation to Norse paganism whatsoever, but just is really touched by the story and the language. That's, uh, you know, like you look at Rumi, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Everybody's every every scholar's read some Rumi, mm-hmm. but nobody's a Sufi. You know, nobody's <laughs> a uh, um, you know. It's just something like that. That 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 certainly would be uh, would be a beautiful thing to see.
1: Yeah. It, I would actually add something to that. Uh, just a slight comment: like religion is always extended between uh, the serious and the ridiculous. This is where you always have to find religion. The, 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 uh, um, I I'm very much personally believe in, in you know, um, modern secular democracies as, a, as the, the best way to organize societies. And, uh, and, and you can only do that if you, as somebody who has a uh, religion or a spirituality, also don't take yourself too seriously like and this is also to uh I guess you know maybe uh, sending a little thought to to what has been happening in Europe lately um some of the uh things that we're seeing in France and Austria and elsewhere yeah. um yeah guys chill the fuck out please <laughs> and it this goes, this goes for right this goes for everybody it's like yeah have have your beliefs have your religions also you know what there's no reason to 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 uh, uh you know as an individual go out and and antagonize people's uh people's beliefs of course um but but it's it's on everybody to you know keep themselves in check
0: it's yeah it's that want to almost kind of like push your beliefs on somebody else or I guess it, you do get it you see so much on Facebook of like people just getting into arguments over m- such menial things are nothing and they might you know it, it might be a case of I don't know I'm trying to pick a trivial subject but you know it could you know it could be just, well, no, the, it couldn't be. It could be. Let's say, like, uh, this is this is going to be the for anybody listening. This is the most British example anybody could ever give. It could be when you've got like a scone and you put you put either the cream on first and then the jam, or you put the jam on and then the cream. Now you wouldn't believe the arguments that people have over that. Like that is, I we I am telling you, we will get messages over this. Because people go fucking mental over which way around whether you put the cream or the jam first. But the point is that people get so attached to their, to their ideas and the way that they do it and the way that they do it is right. That everybody has to do it their way. And it's well, it's like, well, maybe you going back to the, the example, it's like, maybe you like the taste of it with the cream on first and then the jam, but maybe somebody else just likes the jam first and then the cream. And it's like, who the fuck cares? Like, You like what you like, and and that I think that can be applied to a lot of things. It's like some people believe in Islam, some people believe in Christianity, some people are modern heathens. And it's like, as long as they're not hurting anybody, just let them just get on with it and fucking believe what you want. You don't have to tell somebody that they're wrong.
1: And and that's the same thing, you know, uh, you can laugh at uh, somebody uh, believing in uh, Say being a witch or believing in, in heathenry or something like that, and you can laugh at somebody being a Christian or Muslim or or whatever. Did you know? Um, every, like, I think it's important that we all, as human beings, learn to laugh at ourselves and each other. And mm-hmm. um, and if uh, if we uh, if we do that, and we can uh, approach that in in good humor and and um, you know uh, with a sense of common decency as well then 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 things will be all right. Absolutely. And right now we're seeing we're seeing the the,
0: the opposite. <laughs> Absolutely we yeah. are. Yeah. So so Jason, one thing I picked up from from the poem and one thing that stood out for me is was your kind of description of hell. Um and I guess I just wanted to ask how how you saw it on your journey. And then I wanted to kind of go over to Matthias and, and let him give us kind of like the scholarly side of how it is. Cause I, in my opinion, or how I've always seen, it, I've seen it kind of come across in two ways. One in kind of the very much Christian kind of Satan, dark, evil place of, of like a, you know, what you consider hell. And then almost like the, the opposite of that and it not being negative, it just kind of being the place where the people who were unfortunate, you know, unfortunate of not to die, in battle, would go and just hang out until Ragnarok. It wasn't necessarily an evil place.
2: Yeah, I think for, from my standpoint, uh, and again, is as, as a bit of a practitioner of the faith that involves this, and also um, based on my poetry, and also the lore you know that we have, and, 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 the, and the sagas, and and what we can read in the, of of the literature on the subject, uh, and also the overlay of Christianity uh, on it. Uh, for me, it, it, it when, when I was going there and writing this you know there's the long bridge which i think is you know the bridge there is is somewhat uh, based in 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 the literature um and you know just a long bridge to a dark place you know and 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 when i was down there you know it was like there's all my ancestors you know and there's there's a, a section of poetry there uh, there that where i'm down there and amongst the people that that came before me um and that's just kind of how i see it it's kind of a dark kind of cold place maybe you know certainly mm-hmm. Uh, not hot or satanic. or It just seemed like a dark, cold place where you go, and and the great tragedy of it is that we all go there. And and again, I you know in the poetry you, you see uh, the figure on account there of Balder. Uh, I think is a powerful sentiment. And again, it's all it's all myth and metaphor and, and deep meaning of, of, of universal experiences. But for me, it's it's the dark, cold place that everyone goes, and, and for the most part, and you, you can't leave, uh, and it's sad you know and and we all know mm-hmm. people that are that are in that kind of place uh, but there is balder the uh the light of the Norse pantheon who is also there you know and 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 almost to me symbolizes like uh, the eternal hope in darkness you know why is the brightest why would why would the the people who constructed these myths or discovered these myths within themselves or in the reality of the external other worlds why would they place the brightest most beautiful kindest being in the darkest deepest place you know if it, to me it makes sense in terms of relating to all the suffering that we go through and, and to know that there's hope in the darkness um and you know that's my general take on it and then one small little nerdy uh tick mark to add on to that is the fact that i believe transmigration was somewhat uh around uh, the germanic peoples and the celtic peoples and also the nordic peoples so i think there is some thoughts maybe that, that we could leave there and come back and try again. Um, but uh, but maybe y'all can speak more to the, the historicity of that.
0: Yeah. Just before you get to like the physical, like, area of hell and what it would be, you mentioned the the long bridge. And I guess that's almost kind of like, I guess, the bifrost is what comes to mind. So, Mateus, I just wanted to quickly ask, like, how much truth is there to like a bifrost or what is – because I guess – you see almost like a rainbow bridge that, that connects the realms. Um, and I'm hoping this is a shorter subject for you to maybe just touch on it and, and give a little bit of info.
1: Okay, so there are plenty of bridges uh, throughout the literature, um, throughout Nordic mythology. There's a, the Bibrest. The, uh, which leads to the gods. thats noted Stutterson tells us about that. Um, the, the, it's also mentioned in in poetry that the the question is if it's really a bridge or if it's something else, and if it's really a rainbow or if it's something else. There's there's plenty of uh, scholarly suggestions. There. For instance, the scholarly suggestion that uh, just, I can't remember. This Icelandic guy wrote an article about uh, how it's actually the sea, and and not really a rainbow bridge originally. Um uh was that Jon neville Island States? So it could have been I'm not entirely sure, I can't remember, but um that's just just one example of like how this has been interpreted. Um uh, now there 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 are, so in the story uh, about Baldur's death, uh, there's also a bridge uh to hell. Um it is described how Hermoder, uh Baldur's brother, goes to hell. To try to get Alter back, and that's where we get this. What Hale says that well, if everybody cries, then sure, and then we have one who doesn't cry, um, and, um, and and on his journey there, uh, Hermoder has to cross a bridge um to get to to the, the the realm of the dead and this is so very common for uh, mythology and uh, in general and of course of course nordic mythology in particular um we have multiple bridges all over the place uh, for these kinds of places that you can't reach um and that's the point we can't reach them as a living um and this is also, by the way, what Muthguder, the the, uh, the 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 figure who guards the bridge, says to him. and well, he's like, wait a minute! I, a couple of days ago, there was a whole army that came over here. And by the way, keep that in mind. The whole army that came over the bridge, and you uh, make more noise than they did because they were dead, whereas he's alive, right? <laughs> so that's also something that's uh, to, to to take into consideration. The whole point of bridges um, and you know, by inference, therefore also rivers, um, and they're also mentioned typically uh, the river Kyrk, um, which means the howling or something like that. They're also mentioned as as a uh, a, a typical boundary between uh, our world and the world of the dead. And the whole point is to basically uh, in in sort of like a narrative literary sense mark them as unreachable places.
0: I guess I guess that's something that kind of pops up in. In Greek mythology as well, is it is it the river the river Styx? I'm trying to show my show my knowledge here for once. I feel I always feel so tentatively to say things. I'm like, is it this?
1: It's it it is, and this is also you can find this in just just basic English literature from like the medieval period up until yesterday, um, like, you know, there's so many examples of of of, uh, of this, like, if, if an author wants to describe a realm that you can't really get to, right, think of Harry Potter, what do you have to do in Harry Potter, you have to take your little, uh, that cart that transports all your luggage, and then you have to run into a wall, right? That's the same thing. This exact same idea that that this is an unreachable place that you can only reach if you're special or dead, I guess. Um, and and Harry Potter's got it, and and all kinds of literature uh, has it. Um, you, you know, uh, the Danish historian Saxo, the medieval historian, he 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 has used images of hell to de- describe how. Uh, Christianity comes to Scandinavia. And this starts with a journey where you have to, like, sail all the way through the far north, beyond the stars and the moon and the sun. And and then you get to this weird place in Bjartmaland, which, you know, is the actual name for it. Northern Russia, uh, <laughs> and that's where you cross the Golden Bridge, and you get to this guy called Gudmundur and he will, uh, you know, try to entice you and all kinds of funky stuff. Very devilish themes. He was also a Christian author, um, so to, no, this is this is pretty standard. And um, and and the whole point is always to tell you that you can't reach there unless you're dead, um, uh, or or on some kind of magical journey, right?
0: Could that be maybe why, I guess, it's associated with a rainbow? Because a rainbow is kind of one of those things that you can just never get to.
2: If you think about it, Rainbow Bridge can also be a canning for something you can't walk on. Yeah,
0: exactly.
2: Well, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's,
0: that's exactly also the point,
1: right? And so if it goes to sort of like the physical descriptions of hell, um, what we have to realize is that when we're reading a guy like that's uh his prose, Edda, this – it. This is one of the themes that is so infused with Christianity Um, and for a good reason. Uh, Snorri Sturluson was a Christian. He was uh, educated in um, uh, at least like some learned culture um, of of the 13th century. Um, What he knew of the world was that it was, um, you know, there was a heaven above where God sits somewhere. And we find ourselves somewhere in the middle and then there's like uh, seven levels of hell and 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 people go to different places depending on what sin they committed right and that's why at the very bottom you have the devil munching on Judas right um, Judas goes to the very bottom of hell um, and Snodri, when he's describing all of this he he, he uses that that Christian cosmos. And he describes how all father, by the way, uh, cast hell into the, the ninth level. So the very, the, it's like even lower than Satan, I guess, where, <laughs> where, where, where the goddess hell is then hanging out. And she rules over Niplehemr. And that literally, or Hell, depending on uh, which sources we're reading, that literally means um, the mist world or the, the, the mist underworld um so so and you know how we use the word nebulous if something is nebulous we don't know what we're talking about right and that, that's that's the whole point of saying mist tell again for for the same reason saxo when he has uh, uh, people traveling to this uh, other world uh they also have to go through mist this also happens all the time in the literature so um so that's where you find that goddess and that's where Balder then goes to uh, when he dies, for a very specific reason. This is only Sneris Sturluson who tells us this, for a very specific reason. Well, what what is Sneris Sturluson's general reasoning when it comes to the Nordic gods? Well, it is that they're humans. They're wizards who have uh, tricked people in Scandinavia to believe that they are in fact... Uh, um, gods. And this is not to take away anything from, from, from your interpretation, Jason. Um, uh, uh but what Snodis Dudason is telling us when he's, when Balder dies and is placed in that underworld is that, uh, he's not a god. He is a, uh, an evil, uh, wizard, just like Odin, just like Thor, just like all of these gods uh, who have tricked people to believing that they're gods and that's why he will go to the lowest levels of hell right so that's also why we get people interpreting the norse underworld as some kind of like hell uh, in in the christian sense it's because there's a christian telling us that this is what it is
0: (laughs) (laughs) so is is that is that the the primary source for what we know yeah, and there are there
1: are other sources that are telling us a little little bits and details, um, and you have to look into like for instance the poem Baldur's Drömer, or Baldur's Dreams. That's an eddic poem that um, you know is about uh, Odin going to the underworld to talk to a dead seeress of Völva uh, to gain knowledge about uh, Baldur's death and all that stuff. That poem is is likely to be very late. So composed in the Christian era, um, possibly by Christians or most certainly by Christians, I'd say. Um, and that poem follows similar uh, like ideas of what the underworld uh, is as Snöder uh, Sturluson. And this is what this is why this is so tricky. I mean, we can we can make sense of it today and, and rationalize it in the way that we want to, whatever we want to believe. But the the person who's describing all of this, the the, the main sources describing this underworld are Christian. And they're not just trying to give us an an account of what people might have believed. Uh, What they're trying to tell us are very important pedagogical, didactical things about uh, Christianity, actually. We're, we're seeing Nordic mythology infused with one of the most important Christian concepts, cosmos, because cosmos in a Christian context demonstrates God's order. And, when, uh, and what that means is, of course, also things that Christians consider good and bad, right? So that's why it's so important for Snorri Sturlusen to fashion all of this in a a Christian context rather than a Mm -hmm. uh, non-Christian context. If we try to go beyond that veil of Christianity that he sort of like throws over all of these um, words and concepts, then what we probably had back in pre-Christian times, like these random random Joe Smobo Viking back in 800, what did he believe in? Right. He probably believed that he would go to some kind of afterlife that mirrored very much the life that he had lived. And maybe he'd attach that to the abode of a certain god. So, for instance, if he was an avid Thor worshipper, he would go to Thor. There are some scholars who've also suggested that these, these things are gendered, so um, that women would go one place and men would go another place. I'm not particularly if fan of that idea um but this is based off this idea that uh that we see in the poetry uh Grimmysmal in particular where it says that odin takes half of the dead and freya takes the other half some have suggested oh that's men
0: and women i don't think so um that would be a boring afterlife yeah. <laughs>
1: it's like no way man <laughs> no so so this this there are plenty of interpretations, but we, what you can also see, if you go beyond the literature uh, and just look at the archaeology, what we have are uh, thousands of graves from Scandinavia from this like period of, that we call the Viking Age, from before and, and so on, that are fashioned um, in accordance with what people believe the afterlife to be, right? So one of the things that we uh, that is very consistent up until Christianity shows up is that people, they put grave goods in the graves, right? They put all kinds of things in there. They give gifts and food and shoes and weaponry and tools and chairs and chests and tables and horses and dogs and uh, there's even peacock and, you know, a lot of different things yeah and this this tells you one simple thing and that is that people definitely believe that when you put a person down there in that hole in the ground uh they would continue to live there with the things right and that's the real hell right that's also what hell means hell means the covered place it's the same root as the word cellar right you know what a cellar is (laughs) it's a basement it's a It's a a hole in the ground where where you can't necessarily see what's going on. And we have so many different uh, uh, things going on, too. Like the the chamber graves that are, you know, that's a very specific Viking-age thing. It's a very urban Viking-age thing. Like they happened in the 900s, typically. That's where we have the majority of the chamber graves from. Around like Hedeby in southern Denmark, Birka in Sweden. Um, Some of them are fashioned as houses. So, like there's, for instance, in southern Denmark, there's one that, that's a house, like a nice little house where you didn't have a woman uh, that was buried there. And she was buried in a very specific way. She was tied to a chair as if she was sitting. And we have evidence, especially from a candle that has been used, that people went in there long after she had died and then they hung out with her. And you just gotta have to ask yourself: Is this like a situation, just like that Baldur's Dream story, where Odin goes to the underworld and talks to a dead seeress? Because it definitely sounds like it, if you ask me. Mm, yeah,
0: so, so that's I, heavy. I, I think it's, it's fair to point out that you know, people didn't see death the way that we see it today. It's not; it wasn't like the negative, the negativity that it has now. No, and they, they had they had a, a huge, like such such
1: a rich, what you would call imaginary life around death, um, in this period of time, where all kinds of things happened. Like you see graves that are being like constructed, right? You see some people getting burnt. That's that's by the way the most common way to get rid of a body in 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 until Christianity in Scandinavia. Like so so from like, up until like the middle of the nine hundreds, you know. Back to the stone age. People burn, right? That's, you, cremate, you cremate people, and that's it. Um, but you do it in so many different ways. You don't always do it. Some people are uh, retained for various persons, uh, purposes, I guess. Um, probably because of status, too. Uh, who knows? Like uh, you could, you could suggest that you know some individuals are buried as whole bodies because they were trying to preserve them. You know, you never know. But uh, but what we see is that you know somebody gets burnt. Um, certain items like weapons are, are put in, in the grave and it's usually a burial mound, right? They put a burial mound uh, over uh, the dead, the burial mounds that you can still see in the Scandinavian landscape today and still today have like such rich histories and stories to test in. But anyway, you put the people in there and then you put the, the grave goods with them and sometimes people come back and then they take certain items out like weapons and this is not grave robbers um this is this is people of the community maybe even descendants of the person who died they come back and then they take a sword and we have plenty of stories about uh, you know magical swords i wonder if we're, what we're dealing with here is, is is actually a ritual in and of itself like oh we give this weapon with grandpa uh, send him to the underworld with the weapon and then we come back and take it we have a story about that Herber, she goes and she conjures her dead dad or grandpa—I can't remember—but uh, Angatir. and she's like, "Give me that sword, bro!" And he's like, "No!" And he's like an evil spirit and all that stuff. But she gets it anyway, and then she like goes and is one of the best
0: warriors ever. I mean, could that be? Maybe if if somebody was a particularly good warrior and they died, and obviously they were buried with their sword. And maybe you know, two three generations later, the stories have been passed down about how you know good of a good of a fighter they were. To then go back and take the sword to somehow try and channel that ability, almost
1: absolutely. Like, but that's the thing. Like, the idea is that the underworld is in and of itself a magical place. So that means added value to whatever item that you bring out from the underworld. And um, consider that our modern ideas of like the difference between living and dead are based off of this idea of clean unclean so unclean is of course bad and this has been exacerbated by other things like for instance the 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 cultural uh, uh consequence in the western world of discovering what bacteria are um that's why your mom's always been like you have to wash your hands and all that stuff, right? Um, that's that's part of this. This all like weaves together, and you know what? The best example of it is actually um, uh, a Japanese mythology. Go to the origin mm-hmm. story. Right, where you have izanagi and izanami. Um, a very, very strong split between the ideas of clean and unclean in male-female. Uh, male is clean, female is unclean, female belongs to the underworld and is associated with menstruation, death, disease, um, uh, all of these kinds of things. That comes from the result of her giving birth to um, a, a fire god. I can't remember his name. Um and, and and then she dies because of that right and uh the burns in her uh, uh, uh in her vagina basically are uh, uh, the result of, uh, or by the cause of her dying this is where you see there's a very strong split and you can see that throughout japanese culture as well these uh, these very strong gender lines and, and and all that stuff that of course operates on different levels in multiple societies throughout the world and there was certainly similar ideas present in pre-christian scandinavia but what comes with christianity is a very strong separation between life and death and that's because christianity theologically is based off of this very strong separation of life and death remember in christianity you're actually not supposed to die at all that's different in a pre-christian context people die now the question is then what happens to them when they die and they have an afterlife. That's what we see in the Scandinavian context. They have an afterlife in the landscape, in the locality. That's why we still have folktales about the hundred people that live in the mountains, right? That's the, that's the spirits of the ancestors. Um, we just call it something else today because we've had so much uh, Christianity involved, and then we became rationalists, and then we uh, kind of think that it's a ridiculous idea to think about ancestors living in a mountain right over there. That's, that's the modern take on it, right? But it's still the same idea that exists in the folktale from that was recorded in the late uh, 19th century or the 20th century, as it was, you know, for the person in the 1500s and the per- person in the, you know, the 500s, right? It's the same deal. Um, so, so that's another thing to consider that uh, the euphemisms that uh, lie behind the words that are being used in mythology they tend to just basically say, "Oh, it's the covered place. It's that place that's like nebulous to us. We don't actually know what it is. We just know that this is where our ancestors lived or lived. Mm. And sometimes we go and give them gifts, and sometimes we go and you know take stuff back because we need it again. You know. So yeah, that's my long rant about that." <laughs> I can only imagine yeah. how
2: powerful it would be to go to a mound and pull a sword out that your grandfather carried and be like, oh, we're under attack. Let's what? use this and, and taking it with you. And it's hopefully it, hoping it didn't rust, you might have to reforge it.
0: It's quite Excalibur-esque as well, that, that pulling the sword from the ground. I mean, that's, that's where these stories about Excalibur and all that stuff comes from.
1: Going back to this thing of like, did, did these peoples, the Celtics and the Germanic peoples, Scandinavian and so on did they interact and mix and so on El Helia, they did there's a reason that the, that you know one of the biggest most awesome silver chalices that have been found in northern European history in the Danish area has Celtic imagery all over it right? Um, <laughs> it's because there was so much interaction. Go to the Rhineland area it was like a multicultural hub. A uh, two thousand years ago, where you have Roman, Celtic, and Germanic culture all coming together, and you know, becoming its own thing, basically. Oh, oh with a pinch of Egyptian and a pinch of Persian as well. Um, yeah. God of yeah, I. And
2: so on. It's hard to disc- hard to discount too the the influence of the Roman Empire and the Roman economy on bringing all that together. Um, it's just fascinating how that kind of came about. You know, yeah. I think there's some interesting parallels between the modern global world and everybody interacting and Rome was doing it back then with weaving everybody together. It's hard to imagine a, a, a Northern Europe mythology and, and and kind of all the stories that we have without the backdrop of Rome kind of holding it all together back in the, Absolutely. back in the day.
1: Absolutely. And that's, that's what we, as scholars, like what we are always pointing out is that, yeah, um, the developments that take place from the year zero and onwards, actually a couple centuries before um um in northern europe uh generally defined by the geopolitical movements of the Romans uh, that's really it um that's also what the mythology reflects uh influence from from Rome in different uh places and you know this brings us to then to this like split between christianity and not christianity when it comes to the writing down in the mythology in the 13th century actually what uh and, and others are doing is it, not that different from what their uh pre-christian ancestors did um it's just under you know or on new terms so to speak they're, they're, they're adopting southern ideas just like people did in the 500s and people did in the, the year zero um it's it's a that's that's how it's always been for
0: for Scandinavia. It's still that like that. Like, <laughs> so, Matthias. Yeah. Um, you just you just kind of quickly mentioned the Egyptians, and we on the last episode we had uh, Jeanette Varberg on who mentioned about how obviously the the sort of pre Norse had the links with Egypt with the, the glass beads, and we were able to prove that. Is there any possibility that? these ideas about death could have come up. It's just with the way you kind of mention it, it seems very Egyptian in kind of being buried with the goods and almost having, you know, going to another life that that exists um, almost alongside what we have now.
1: Okay, let me give you an example. In Denmark, we have something called burger dressing. have never seen that in the U.S., it is basically some kind of like thousand island dressing offshoot that's called American burger dressing. Um, and this is the same with like, you could go to a Danish store and you could get a bag of chips called American barbecue. And it's got nothing to do with American barbecue whatsoever. American barbecue is a thousand different things. Um, and it's not on chips. I mean, there, sure, yeah, there's sure there's barbecue flavored chips, but it's yeah. Anyway, the point is here that you have a, a, a thing, uh, uh, an invention in, in the United States. Um, or it, maybe it even didn't come from the United States, but it, it, that's where it is. Uh, it's, it's all of a sudden um, it turned into a very popular thing. The burger. The burger most likely came from Hamburg, hence Hamburg. Um, and there are even Danes that would claim that they invented it. Uh, but that's an entirely different uh, cultural war. Uh, anyway the point is here so the hamburgers are popularized in the u.s and becomes a staple of american food and this is like american and then you know europeans at some point start copying that you know american version of the hamburger and that's how you get a new invention which is the burger dressing and the american burger dressing that you can go find in any store in 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 europe It's, it's a it's an interpretation of something uh, that relates to a cultural product, in this case of food, uh, from a certain region, right? That's how culture flows. That's how ideas flow. It doesn't matter if it's uh, ideas about the afterlife or ideas about what you put on your burger. Um, it's, it's, It's always like in this flux where you have, you know, an invention that's crops up in some some area, and then it gets adopted over here and interpreted in its own cultural context, and then moved to another place where it's interpreted in its own cultural context, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so, for instance, you know, burial mounds, they're all over Atlantic Europe. They're in the British Isles, they're in Scandinavia, they're along the coast of uh, northern Germany, uh, the Netherlands, uh, France, Spain. Getting into the Mediterranean in Italy, and and so on and so on. And yeah, duh, of course, this is some kind of like a uh, uh, cultural complex that relates straight to the idea of building pyramids. Ultimately, it has its own context in Northern Europe, but it probably has its origins in the idea of building pyramid monuments, of course. Like, why wouldn't it? Uh, especially if you if you can follow the trail through the bronze Age uh, the, the stone Age to the Bronze Age and and so on to uh, uh, to you know coastal europe um, then you go to let's say, you know, central Russia, and in central Russia, you also find burial mounds. question is, did they come from the same origin? Maybe. It's not impossible, but they could also have had their own context. It's not impossible that humans come up with, you know, similar ideas um, independently of one another. That's definitely also a possibility. But, you know, when it comes to uh, coastal Europe, I'm pretty certain that uh, the Europeans generally um, belong to the same great culture as you find in North Africa and the Mediterranean and also um, in, uh, in 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 the Middle east as well so yeah that's that's how these things work right and 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 yeah they, they have their own context where wherever you find them but they belong to like this wider complex of, of similar thoughts mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's the same with the gods too, right? So you have you know gods that you know migrate between cultures and peoples, and take on their own flavor depending on where they get to. You know.
0: Perfect. Um, one last thing I want to ask is just just to pull it back to kind of like the the death and and where you go. I guess firstly would be what would what would your opinion be on what hell would look like to to kind of like the average quote-unquote Viking or person living in Scandinavia? Like, would it be like a, a dark place? Would it be kind of just a place where people hang out that died of old age, I guess? Um, the other thing I wanted to ask was about the, is it the Atastoop, which is the, that was one thing that I've been wanting to ask for episodes and episodes, and I've not found a place to fit it in until now. Fair <laughs> enough. And I, that come that can't I only know about that from Norsemen on Netflix, and I will. I I I have no problem admitting that either. That's
1: the that's the hilarious uh, go to my mind has like w- with this as well. The re- the reference point is definitely that scene in Norsemen. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, first of all, like what would hell have looked like? Um, I think it it probably looked like that. You know, sort of like dark, dank place that's kind of the the idea that we get from a broad range of the sources um
0: i keep getting like a a, a cave image then from both what you and jason said kind of like that cold wet damp kind of kind of It's like a cave but you have to
1: consider if if these people thought that the afterlife in some way or another mirrored um the, the the existing life, right? Then they would also furnish the afterlife in the same way. This is not what Svetoslav does, right? He tells us like the knife is called hunger, or the dish is called hunger. I can't remember, and and the bowl is called famine, and and like the entrance is called stumbling block, um, which is just so embarrassing. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, like he does whatever he can to furnish it with, uh, this sucks. Whereas he, the, the opposite is of course that warrior paradise that he frames for Odin and his warriors, which again, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but that's his invention more than anything else.
0: Uh oh, you, you've just broken so many people's hearts. They're the sharpening their pitchforks and their <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the,
1: the No, so 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 Snorri. Really, it takes like this very weird, elusive uh, stanza from Krimnismal that tells us something like uh has uh boiled in in uh, in, in el and Andrinje means that which cools the spirit or which freezes the spirit or something like that. Um, means that which freezes the ocean and spirit and could also just mean air. Um, and an Elrinje that which freezes the fire. And that is what he fashions into like the cook named An who uh, boils cycrimia which is a pig um, in El which is a pot this is like and takes something that is like incredibly deep and mystical and then he turns it into a fucking cartoon <laughs> to furnish Valherb with a boar that is never going to get uh, like, to get depleted from bacon.
2: Thanks a lot, bro. Um, endless, endless <laughs> bacon. Let's do it. I mean,
0: whew, sounds good to me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, what
1: the stanza really uh, ends with is a uh, v- few know what the Einherjar actually eat. So Snorri Sturluson says the exact opposites of what the stanza actually says. The stanza says we don't know what they the, these dead warriors eat, and then Sturluson, oh yeah, I do bacon um he's he's very busy uh, constructing basically like structuring furnishing and setting up a nice cool uh warrior paradise with a burning fire pit with uh endless food and endless beer and endless fighting right because he's trying to tell us that that's like the viking version of god's paradise um, and, and that's, of course, because the Vikings, they are heretics, right? They, they, they don't understand true Christianity. And so the uh, opposite to this is, of course, this, you know, dreary hell where nobody gets anything to eat. Now, consider this. Basically, comes down to what you think of life, how you think of death, Right? Your ideas of death and what the the afterlife uh, is are most likely uh, defined by what you think of life. And this says a lot about the Christian attitude to death and the idea that, you know, it's better in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. We have no way of knowing if that's what uh, uh, people thought in pre-Christian Scandinavia. We don't know they, I mean, it, maybe based on the grave goods, we could suggest that they thought it was the same. Um, if that's the case, then, you know, every afterlife has
2: a nice little fire pit and food and drink and um, your
1: family's there and everybody's not happy and enjoying life and not, there's still a grave map over there. Uh, if they thought life was, better than death, then, then they could have fa- uh, fashioned it, uh, it as some kind of like dreary afterlife that sucks. Um, it's, it's hard to tell because the sources are so complicated on this particular mm-hmm. issue. Um, in other cases, the sources aren't that complicated. But on this issue, because it's so important, a subject to Christianity, it's complicated. To figure out what people might have thought, but goes to the Greek mythology and and you know uh, sources that have been touched less, I guess, by Christianity, are telling us that uh, it mirrors the way that people lived. Um, Odysseus, right? Uh, what he sees in the in the in the death realm is uh, is a is an afterlife that. Uh seems perhaps a little darker, but nonetheless very similar. Like Achilles is 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 still a badass you know ruler and all that stuff in the afterlife. Um so so that's probably most likely how people saw it in, in pre-Christian Scandinavia. But I mean, essentially, uh after ranting a very long time, we don't know and it's complicated. <laughs>
0: There we go.
2: Uh, anytime anybody brings up Achilles, I have to mention that uh, he wasn't all that great. <laughs> and uh, di- 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 Diomede's should get more media. I think. Yeah, well, that was I- a guy. I-
1: <laughs> no, I mean Achilles. Like he spends most of the Iliad just like whining in his tent. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> but uh, but so uh, Daniel, just yeah, you know, to cap all of this off, you asked about the Etestu. Uh, it's a uh, uh, a phenomenon recorded in the late 1700s as far as I remember in Sweden and Norway, the idea that older members of the family were sort of like uh, encouraged to um, um, a, um, off themselves,
0: basically <laughs> like, <laughs> commit suicide when they couldn't work any longer. I guess it, it was so they weren't a burden on the uh, on the group. Yes, and there are, so so there are variations of, of how
1: this would take place. But um, so you basically find a very tall cliff, either you jump off or you put on a little wagon, and you know sometimes there's a lake at the bottom, uh, sometimes there's not, and and then you know Grandpa is like put on that little wagon. Oh, And I think they also gave him some tobacco as sort of like a, hey, smoke a pipe on your way down. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So the question is, is this real or is this, you know, uh, sort of like these tales of like silly uh, isolated villagers somewhere? And it's probably a little bit of both, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Just like it's very likely that Scandinavians have always, you know, in times of uh, dire need, um, put a newborn out in the bog. Uh, It's probably also very likely that, yeah, Grandpa did get pushed off a cliff at some point.
0: I guess it would it would make sense that if you know if resources were low and you had elderly people who couldn't pull their weight, as cruel as it sounds in a time where, you know, it's just another mouth to feed, it would kind of make sense that that would happen. So
1: that's the thing. I mean, you have to ask yourself uh, under, under what circumstances do, do these kinds of things happen. And I am sure that there are plenty of uh, farms and communities where, you know, if somebody suggested that, they'd get their ass kicked because we're not doing <laughs> that
0: to Grandpa. Depends if grandpa's an asshole or not. That's another thing.
1: Like if grandpa was an asshole, of course. The point my, my point is it, it probably is you, you probably shouldn't be like, oh this is like something that always happened when a person reaches mm-hmm. a certain age, that's when it happens. Um it's probably more like, you know, certain circumstances warranted it. Certain, you know, conditions. And so on, right? Desperation has pushed people to a lot of different things. And it's not like, you know, it it goes back to 19th century England and consider how many uh, um, infanticized there would be in the Thames. Like, how many baby bodies would you be able to fish out of the Thames um, or the Thames or whatever you call that river?
0: I had no idea what you were saying then. I was like, what the fuck is the Thames? (laughs) Yeah, the, the Thames. Whatever, <laughs> that river. <laughs> My point is,
1: you know, you would find a lot of dead people in that river.
0: Oh, I think you'll find all sorts in there. So I guess the Atterstoop isn't Viking as such.
1: It's like the idea is that, oh, yeah, the Vikings, of course, did it too. I mean, what we have from the Viking Age, um, uh, both like in, in the Scandinavian law material, like so the early medieval laws prohibit putting children out, which means Dumping them in a lake, um, and uh, we also have a uh, Arabian um, emissary, Jakubal um, Tatushi, um, from uh, from Spain, who comes through in in Denmark, who says that they do this. Um, they put their children out, and again, like he, and some might have done that. That's not impossible. Uh, especially when you find it prohibited in the law codes. Probably mm-hmm. means that, you know, in pre-Christian times, that was something that people did. Now, was it something that people did a lot? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, if there was something they did all the time, I wouldn't be here.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course.
1: But, yeah, another mouth to feed that you can't afford. Mm-hmm. It's not
0: improbable. Have, you, have either of you seen the film Midsummer? which is... So, so that's kind of the by the director who did *Hereditary*, which is kind of about Scandinavia, isn't it? And they have a there's a very graphic scene in that, which kind of depicts an elderly person jumping off onto a, a big rock. I mean, that movie is all kinds of fucked up. To, to To loop back to loop back to psychedelics, it's uh, it's kind of one of those. It's a good it's a good film though. It leaves you. I think it leaves you. It's not so much a horror film in the sense of like a traditional kind of jump scare, but it definitely left me kind of like emotionally uneasy. Emotionally, kind of a, a, a I didn't know how to feel after that film finished. I would say one thing, like so. So to begin with, I
1: was like, "Oh, this is just a crappy ripoff of um, of The Wicker Man," right? Um, mm-hmm. Like in this, this Scandinavian setting. Uh, but I've like sort of warmed up to it over uh, over the years now. Um, uh, because I would actually say it's a much better version <laughs> than the Wicker Man.
0: Yeah, I think it, it. For me, it definitely left me feeling just just that little bit. I don't know what it was. It was just something that left me very uneasy and kind of emotionally, just kind of like, what the f- what the fuck? But it was. I, I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant made film. It did its did its job. I definitely recommend it, Jason. If you haven't seen it,
2: uh, it sounds <laughs> deeply uneasy. So I mean, I'm in.
0: Oh yeah, it's it's a it's a brilliant film. Just take note of the light
1: in the movie. As a horror movie, that's probably the most unsettling thing. It's just sunny all the time. I can tell you that never happens anywhere in
0: Scandinavia. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's it though. It is just very much. It's not. There's there's no particularly. There's one graphic scene. There's not very much that happens. Like traditional horror wise it's just a very plays on your feelings very much and it's uh yeah i i really enjoyed it so so yeah let's let's wrap this one up um thank you to everybody you know for listening if obviously if you did, if you enjoyed it please just take a moment to leave us a review hit the subscribe button so obviously you find out when the next episode comes out obviously we have our patreon as well which you can support us on um i'm doing a live Question answer with the artist, the Saxon storyteller tomorrow, which should be pretty fun. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of bonus material on there that you get for you know for helping us out a little bit and helping us you know make the show even better. Um, so, Jason, yeah, if you just want to let people know where they can find you, your work, um, obviously your social media, that kind of thing.
2: Sure. The, I guess for the, the spectrum of, of support, the easiest place to find me is Instagram um, where I post poetry and, and, and maybe other ritual stuff there, about every day uh, at wandering Yggdrasil. Um, I trust this audience can spell that.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure they will. I'll, I'm going to, I'll share it as well. Anyway, just to make
2: sure. The next level up, of course, my book is out, The Oath, A Heathen Poet's Journey. Uh, Amazon has finally recognized me. So the, the, the search engines don't just return uh, uh, Halloween Jason stuff. Um, <laughs> so it shouldn't be too easy to hard to find. Also my Instagram has got all the links. Um, and then yeah. the, the last level support, I've got a Patreon. Jason Rawls or wondering if should find that, uh, if you want to jump on yeah. there and help me move on to the next book and kind of, I've got a little, little community that, uh, I'm still amazed that they support me. It's, it's, uh, again, yeah. surreal, but I've got a little community on there that, uh, that uh uh, like to to join me so
0: no that's awesome um the the book can is it is it is it just an online or is it a physical copy
2: uh just just physical copy for now um with poetry it's just hard to it was hard to get some kind of format that would fit on a kindle or something where you you know there wouldn't be bleed between pages and stuff so just okay. try to keep the experience plus the bind rune on the cover i feel is really significant and so it's a physical physical uh article that hopefully people can have in their homes
0: yeah i mean we'll we'll have a chat after and see it getting some for us to stock and then people can grab it from our shop which makes it nice and easy i guess as well
2: yeah that'd be great
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And like I say, it's hopefully been a fun one for people to to listen to. We, We covered a bunch of subjects. Oh, Matthias, forgot about you there. (laughs) Yeah, you can always find me on
1: Instagram under my name, which is You can find me on uh, Facebook with the Nordic Mythology Channel uh, page that I sometimes upload stuff to. Mm -hmm. You can also find my website www.nordicmythologychannel.com where I sometimes post rants um, on my blog. The most recent one is my take on the... German show Barbarians or Barbaren, as it is called in German um, That sounded Scottish <laughs> Well I don't know maybe, maybe my, uh, my German accent is getting more Scottish
0: <laughs> Maybe maybe I wouldn't be surprised at this point <laughs> <laughs> Perfect Yeah you can so obviously you can find me through the company uh, at Horns of Odin on Instagram and also at daniel underscore farrand1 as well um, on Instagram. That's my personal personal Instagram, mainly just pictures of me in the gym. (laughs) So, yeah, this has been awesome. Thank you very much, Jason. Um, And, yeah, take care.
2: Thank you.